0: So we want to pick up our study in the book of James again and uh, last time we talked about uh, uh, beginning to receive the word and what it really meant and what did it mean to engraft the word or implant the word in our lives and what were the consequences of doing that. Today we want to focus on three things that James tells us we need to be doing with the words as Christian. There is more on receiving the word and then practicing the word and then sharing the word. The word, And we're looking at James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. And just kind of to review where we've been, uh, two weeks ago we went through these three steps that you should go through mentally whenever you're tempted. One is remember the consequences of our sin. Uh, That is that all sin leads to some kind of death. Secondly is to remember the goodness of God. Had David considered the fact that God had already given Saul's kingdom and Saul's wives and Saul's riches, then he wouldn't have thought, I've got to have Bathsheba too. And the prophet Nathan actually said, if you had wanted anything else, you need only to have asked for it. And then if we would remember the divine nature with us, verse 18 of chapter 1 says, Of his own will beget he us that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, we're, we're God's children, and so for us to yield to temptation is to serve the enemy of our father. It's to serve the enemy of the king and of the kingdom, In which we live and operate. And so we talked about there were some last week, some intentional activities that we need to do. And I appreciated Brother Stephen remembered that intentionality during his Sunday school lesson. But we need to intentionally receive the word, we need to intentionally refuse to give in to anger. As the sign on my door says, uh, anger is one letter short of danger. Uh, We need to remove the filth from our life. James called it in the King James Version the superfluity of naughtiness, basically the weeds that come into our life that choke out our spiritual life. We need to ruminate on God's Word. And I told you about going to Texas A&M University and how we used to have a cow there that had windows in the sides. There's a name for it. I never can remember the names. They looked like little portholes about that big. And you could see the food going into the first stomach. And after a while, you'd see it coming back out of the stomach and the cow would just suddenly start chewing again. And then you see it go down into a different stomach. It went to four stomachs, each each of which have kind of two compartments. It's almost like having eight stomachs. But you see see that, that cud going up and down and up and down. Uh, thank you, sweetheart. Uh, so it was important to see that it really doesn't become a part of them until they've chewed on it and chewed on it and chewed on it. And the Word of God really becomes a part of us when we've meditated on it, when we've ruminated on it, when we've thought it over, when we've memorized it. And And then we talked about that it is the soul that is the battleground, which is why he says, "Receive with meekness the engrafted or the implanted word, which is able to save your souls." And of course, this is—I uh, I, I didn't mention this last week. I did mention the fact the NIV doesn't translate that word, and the NIV leaves the word "soul" out some 30 times out of the New Testament because the translators of the NIV did not believe in a soul. They believed you were body and spirit, but they didn't believe in a third part, but we're created in God's image. He's Father, Son, and Spirit, and He created us spirit, soul, and body. And so we're a tripartite, not a bipartite, and this is one of the reasons I don't keep an NIV Bible. I don't mine to a hospital. I figure it's better to read that than nothing, but I certainly wouldn't study out of it. So uh, this is why we need to learn how to get back the ground that we give over to Satan through bitterness or or greed or immorality of some kind. And then we talked about how to do that. How do you take back the ground that you've given over to Satan? And if you don't do this, if you don't confess your sin, whether it's bitterness is a pretty frequent sin among people that I counsel with, uh, and you don't ask God to take back this, the ground, because remember Psalm 23 says, He restoreth my soul. Uh, we, we can't go to a psychologist, and you can't take a, a medication that will put your soul to right. We have to have Jesus restore our soul, And one of the ways we do that is to take down the false beliefs that we believe and, and replace them with truth. So we need to tear down our strongholds with truth. And then we need to demonstrate a change in our, our attitude. So if someone's offended us, we should show kindness toward them. And so we talked, uh, even showed you a diagram, and Jesus talked about if you don't cast out... The thing that's uh, afflicting your soul, uh, it sends out tormentors. And so we start having other problems, maybe in our health, our relationships, our temperaments, all of which are dangerous. But the big takeaway is being a spiritual Christian, growing in the Word, doesn't happen by accident. Or as Brother Stephen said this morning, it's not the default setting. Uh, We have to do something intentionally. So let's look at these three things that James wants us to understand in these closing verses. And we're going to talk a little bit about receiving the word again. So just in honor of God's word, if you're able stand, if you can't or it's painful to you, please sit there. But just in honor, those who can stand would. This is from the Lexham English Bible. It says, but be doers of the message or of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone's a hearer of the message and not a doer, this is like someone staring at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and immediately forgets what sort of person he was. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues to do it, or as King James says, continues therein, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts, this one will be blessed in what he does. Or literally in Greek, he'll be blessed in his doings. If anyone thinks he's religious, although he bridle, uh, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion, the sight of God and our Father is this, to look after orph- orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unsustained by the world. And by the way, verse 26, I'm just going to touch on today. That it probably deserves an entire sermon all by itself. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Now open our hearts to your word and thank you for the fathers in our lives and for the influence they had, some of whom we learned from by negative examples, some by positive. But Father, we thank you that uh, you gave us the fathers you did to help frame uh, the picture of Jesus that is to be in our own lives. Father, we love you and we uh, ask that you glorify yourself today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, thank you, Maybe may be seated. By the way, let me just say a quick word about Father's Day. First of all, happy Father's Day to all you men, whether you're a father-to-be, new father, or somebody who's been there a long time, grandfather, uh, just happy Father's Day to And for, to the rest of you who have fathers, happy Father's Day to you too. Uh, you can celebrate the fact you had one. Uh, so, at any rate, uh, interesting story about Father's Day. I don't know if you know this. Mother's Day was, was, uh, became a holiday in 1908. Uh, and about six years later, Woodrow Wilson, in around 1914, signed Mother's Day into law. The first Father's Day was celebrated in uh, 1910. And it's really kind of a sad way it got started. There was a coal mine on the East Coast that blew up, and 300 men died in that coal mine explosion. And so they had a special uh, memorial service for those uh, folks in the coal mine. Um, But years later, and um, I'm going to have to think just a minute, but there was a woman by the name of Sonora Smart Dodd. And she decided, after hearing a sermon on Mother's Day, interestingly, that she thought fathers needed today too, and she decided to create a ceremony in Washington State, by the way, Spokane, Washington, uh, to honor her father, William Smart Dodd, or William Smart, who was her father. So it was. So listen closely. This was Sonora Smart Dodd honoring her father, William Smart, which just goes to show you that the person who came up with Father's Day was truly a smart woman. Uh, so, at any rate, uh, they were, uh, I know, I hear the groaning collectively. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, and interesting, another thing was, even though they started in 1910 with that one service, it didn't actually become an official uh, day on the calendar until Richard Nixon signed it into law in 1972. So, it took the world a lot time longer to recognize fathers than it did mothers, apparently. But we're, we're happy for that. And I hope that you have a, some father in your life who is... Uh, A blessing. I learned a lot about fatherhood from my dad, uh, a lot of it by negative example. Now, he did teach me to memorize scripture, and for that I'm very thankful. And he taught me one or two other things, but a lot of it was what not to do. Uh, uh, He had problems with anger and some other things that uh, I had to kind of learn to overcome in my life. But I'm grateful for my father-in-law, who is a very great example of the kind of man I hope to someday be. But... uh, in, in James chapter 1, we're about to look at three mirrors. And this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. And we're going to take a moment to go through each of these. There's the mirror of examination. There's the mirror of uh, restoration. And then there's a mirror of transformation. And uh, so we're going to look at these three scripture passages as we go through uh, James chapter 1. But the main takeaway from today is this. It is not enough to hear the word or read the word, you must do the word. It says, this man shall be blessed in his doings. He'll be blessed in his obedience to the word. A lot of times people go out of church and they shake the pastor's hand. Oh, your sermon was such a blessing today. Well, that's a very nice sentiment it's a kind way of expressing things and we live in the friendly state which is Texas and we say things like that. But it's not theologically accurate because we're blessed not in the hearing of the word but in the doing of the word is what James tells us. And, And two, a lot of Christians mark their Bibles but the Bible has never marked their lives. Uh, They have uh, put themselves into reading the Bible, but they haven't let the Bible go inside and really change their lives. And James says, if you read the word without changing your behavior, then you are deceiving your own selves. Or to be more specific, he says, you're making a a fool of yourself uh, by, by doing that. So let's look at this first one, and you see in verses 23, it says, But be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So there's a purpose for a mirror, and the purpose is to go to the mirror and see what you look like so you can fix things. So, normally, when I go to the mirror in the morning, uh, I first of all notice that what little bit of hair I have left is not strategically arranged like it should be, and it needs fixing and so, I have to do something about that and then I notice that overnight i 've gotten that uh, i 've got this white my, my beard grows in white there 's no other color for it, but i 've got that that white fuzz all over, and I just uh, you know I choose not to keep a beard there because i can 't handle the fleas that get in it, and I itch too much and So I like to shave, and so I go in there and I shave it off. And uh, Also, Judy Judy likes me coming, uh, cuddling up to her without the bristle brushes, as we call it in our family. And so I try to to do that. Once a year I may grow a beard, or every few years I might grow a beard. It's it's usually short-lived. I think the last one I had was the longest I'd ever kept one. Uh, But when we look into a mirror, we're supposed to see but not everything is quite right. Maybe your tongue changed color overnight. Maybe maybe you went to bed and you didn't remove all your makeup and what was there is now smeared on one side and clear on the other, or there's something, but we're going to find changes that need to be made. And so James says we need to look in the mirror and see what's wrong. If you read the Word of God, you will find stuff in your life that needs to be changed. Now, James says, though, that there are three mistakes people make when they look into the word of God. Here's mistake number one. Merely glancing at ourselves. You notice what he says here? He says, if anybody is to hear the word not to do it, he's like in a man beholding, basically glancing at his natural face in a mirror. He beholds himself, goes his way, and immediately forgets what he saw. In other words, you didn't take a long look. You didn't take an in- intense look. You didn't see what really happened. It's kind of like you glance at yourself. Oh, there's that guy I shave with every morning. And then you pass right on by. And when we, a lot of times we're very sincere in our Christian life, we know we need to read the Word. So we get the Bible out and we read a chapter. Maybe that takes us five minutes of time. And we say, ah, I read my chapter for the day. Or you get on to, uh, you know, if you've got an echo device in your house, you say, Alexa, uh, ask daily Bible reading to, for the latest episode. And she reads you a chapter from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Uh, and then something from Psalms and Proverbs. And so you, you get something from the, both Testaments and something from the poetic books. And, and it's a great thing to do to hear God's Word. But even then, if you really want to benefit from it, you have to listen intentionally. You have to think about what's being said. You have to pick out something that you feel like God is saying to you. So it, it, if you just read the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible or listen to a chapter for the sake of doing it, it's just a religious exercise. Now, we're going to talk more about the word religion momentarily, but let's just say God isn't a big fan of religion. He is a fan of relationship, and he wants us to have that relationship with us. And so we, we sometimes think, if I didn't read my Bible today, I have, I'll have a little guilty conscience. I didn't take time for God that day because I didn't read my chapter. I didn't read my chapter of Proverbs for the day, or I didn't read five Psalms for the day, or I didn't read uh, a New Testament passage today. But what actually should bother our conscience is whether or not that we, we read the Word carefully. See, what really ought to bother us is when we're careless with the Word, and we read it and we don't pay attention to it. That's a, you know, I would rather you read three verses and get something genuine out of the Word of God that would change your life and that you would think about the rest of the day than for you to read three chapters and forget what it said. And it should change our lives. Now, think about this. Uh, How many of you have ever had surgery of any kind? Raise your hand if you've had surgery. Not the most fun thing in the world. About the best part of surgery is when they put the fentanyl in and you get 20 seconds of feeling good before you pass out. And then you don't remember anything. My favorite person in the hospital is the anesthetist. He's a lot better than the doctor is. Because they keep you asleep, or they're supposed to. One time I had to be woken up during surgery and I had to feel the rest of the surgery while things were in my back, and that's a, a highly on my try-to-avoid list from now on. But um, imagine, though, letting somebody work on your back or on your spine or around your spinal cord, and what they do is right before the surgery, they come in and ask for a Polaroid shot of yourself or the last candid photo you had taken that you can pull up on your phone, and they take a look at that candid photo and said, okay, I'm ready to operate. That would not instill a great deal of confidence in me. I would rather know that he he had spent hours studying my MRI, or that he had looked at x-rays, or he had looked at CT scans, something that gives him a detailed view of what's going on inside where he's going to have his operating instruments. Well, for us to just... Read the Bible to assuage our conscience and then go through the day is a little bit like trying to do a surgical operation with a candid photo. What we need instead is to let the Word of God x ray us to show us what's wrong in detail and not just give the Word a glance. So that's mistake number one that you can make. Mistake number two is forgetting what you see. Notice what he says. In verse 24, he beholds himself, goes his way, and straightway or immediately forgets what kind of man he was. In other words, they they look and they forget. Uh, If you were looking deeply into their hearts, I think if we really took a look at our hearts when reading the Word, I think we'd see something that was unforgettable. We'd fall down our knees and we'd confess what God was revealing to us that was wrong. Now, I... Some of those, I know Brother Steve often refers to some of those uh, old-time revivals. The Third Great Awakening was about 1858. Uh, There have been these uh, movements since then that really weren't of the spirit. They were more of an ecstatic or psychological nature. There didn't seem to be a lot of real uh, working of God behind it, but there have been other movements to look at. But if you read what happened during some of the earlier Great Awakenings, the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, you'll find out that two things marked those. First of all, there was repentance unlike anything we've ever seen during our lifetimes. And secondly, it was such a dramatic repentance that uh, the public... Uh, figures in, in city halls and the leaders of townships were wondering how they were going to make their tax revenue because all the bars would close down in town. That's, it, it's like they all closed and you can read the history about it and they're wondering, what are we going to do? All the bars have closed. Well, it's because people got saved and they quit drinking. Amazing thing. But listen to what John Wesley wrote on, in his journal on June twenty second, 1739. And this is during a meeting where the Spirit of God fell heavy upon them. He says, One before me dropped as dead, and presently a second, and a third. Five others sunk down in half an hour, most of whom were in violent agonies. Now we think, oh man, that sounds like something ecstatic. And extreme. But guess what? This is what happens biblically when people confront the Holy God with the, in the Word of God. Isaiah, you remember, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He fell on his knees before the Almighty. Peter cried, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is after uh, Christ calmed the sea and he says, Depart from me, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinful man. Job was said to be in the Bible the most righteous man of his day. It says in Job chapter 1, He was perfect and upright, fearing God, eschewing evil. Now, by the way, this is a good uh, Father's Day tip. To be perfect means that you're mature. To be upright means that you're walking in a way that you bring honor and glory to your Savior. chewing evil means you hate what detracts from your relationship with God, and you love what is holy. And not only that, it says that he prayed daily for his kids. He was a priest. He prayed that when they would get together for birthday parties at one another's house, and he had a lot of kids, he would pray that they wouldn't do those things that were ungodly. This is a great father. He's perfect, he's upright, he's fearing God, he hates evil, and he prays for his kids. Now right there is a great resume for dad. And yet, as great as Job was and as righteous was, when he got a real vision of the Lord in the, toward the end of the book of Job, he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, it's not an uncommon thing to fall down before a holy God and acknowledge our own sinfulness if you truly see yourself As God sees you. Third mistake James says to make is you just fail to obey. He says, but whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty, interesting term, and continues therein, he being not a forgivable hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his doings or in his deed. See, uh, we we like substituting stuff. Uh, I don't know if you remember this story, but you'll remember when Solomon built the temple. He had 900 shields made of solid gold. Now 300 of them were probably if I was standing with one of these shields and I had it uh, right on the ground and in front of my toes, about 300 of those would have come up to about here on me. The others, the other 600 were smaller. They were about the diameter of a shield that would have covered your thoracic area, your chest and abdomen, and those are 600 smaller shields. Now, when Solomon died, you remember the kingdom became split, but basically his son, Rehoboam, took over as king of Israel at that time. And King Shishak of Egypt invaded Israel, and the Bible says he carried away these 900 targets or shields made out of solid gold. Now, now by the way, in case you're wondering why did you need shields out of solid gold, is when Solomon would make the path from his palace to the temple soldiers would line up on both sides of the road from the palace of the temple. They'd hold these solid gold shields and the sun would shine down on them and it would cast this brilliant flickering reflection of golden light on the ground that Solomon walked to and it put Solomon in the mind that he was not going to just... uh, pay a religious uh, sacrament or ceremony to someone that he was going to be in the very presence of God and it put his mind in the right frame for worship. He didn't care about the fact the shields were gold. He just wanted a reminder that he was entering holy ground to go spend time at the temple with the Lord God. So what happened when Shishak took the gold away from Israel? Well, the Bible tells us that Rehoboam just had 900 other targets made, but they were made of brass. Now, at home, we've got some uh, tops with some brass tables, and uh, one of them is about this big around. A couple others are smaller. They have little stands. They're not up right now. See, one of the problems with brass is it looks real pretty for a while, but then it tarnishes. Any of you that ever went in the military, you remember we had to get a can of Brasso and we would put Brasso on our, our uh, cloth and we would rub those uh, U.S. insignias that were on each lapel or any, our, our brass belt buckle, anything else you had. You had to rub it and rub it because they wanted it shining come inspection day. And it was a regular task to have to do, uh, polish your brass. Now, it's because it tarnishes quickly, but brass is cheap a whole lot easier to make 900 brass shields than it is to come up with the money for 900 gold shields. We like substituting things of lesser worth if it makes us feel better. Well, what do we substitute for really spending time in the Word of God and asking God to show us what we need to repent of? Well, we, we'd rather substitute reading for doing or talking for doing or hearing for doing. And we think that if I've read the Word or I've heard the Word or if I talked about the Word then I'm good. That's just a cheap substitute. It's like brass shields instead of gold. We love conferences and webinars and meetings, especially if they have spiritual talk, and you can tell your brothers, oh, I went to this webinar about this, or I went to this, this conference, got this marriage conference, and I learned so much about marriage. We've got so many things we can work on. It's going to really help our marriage. It isn't going to help your marriage unless you put those things into effect, unless you do the principles of God's Word. So there's nothing wrong with conferences and committee meetings and webinars and things of a spiritual nature, but if it doesn't change our lives, it was pointless. It's like cheap brass instead of gold. We can't just give quick glances at the work. So I'm going to look at this this hymn, Take Time to Be Holy. Listen to verse 2. Take time to be holy... The world rushes on. Spend much time, not little time, not a glance of time. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus like him, we shall be thy friends in thy conduct, his likeness shall see. So what's he saying? You spend a lot of time with Jesus, it'll change your behavior and people will notice. Listen to the third verse. Take time to be holy, let him be thy God, and run not before him whatever betide In joy or in sorrow, still follow the Lord, and looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. He says, you know, you want to not only spend time to become like him, you need to spend time so you know what it is you're doing, so you know what his instructions are. So we can't think that five minutes with God every day is going to change our lives that much. It'll never accomplish a deep spiritual examination, and if you want God to root out the the problems in your life, you've got to start by letting him have an x-ray. Letting them do a CT scan. Letting them have a spiritual MRI where you look into the Word and you really get a glance. Now, by the way, it has taken me, I think it took me 56 years of my life to find a good doctor. And now that i found a good doctor, I don't ever want to go to a different doctor. I finally found the doctor for me. And, and there's two, two things, and there's, there's more than this, but two of the key characteristics for my doctor that I like is, number one, he takes time to listen. I don't ever feel like he's rushing out of the room. Have you all ever been to a doctor that you're, you, you're trying to tell him stuff, but you feel like he's there, he's there for five minutes, and then he's, he's rushing you out of Dodge? So I went to see my pain doctor this week, and he's a good doctor, but he is in there and out of there. So if I want... To ask him questions I come in with a printed list and I hand him I said here are my questions because I know that if I forget a question there's not a 30 second pause in our conversation before he's getting up to leave the room well my, my regular doctor's not like that we'll talk and he'll listen and I've got a chiropractor like this too we're good friends we talk we talk about family we talk about and if I'm, I'm stressed out about something in my life I can tell my chiropractor I probably can't tell anybody else but I can tell him You know, learning to listen is a big thing. And the other thing I really like about my doctor, he's always going to tell me the truth, but he will not want to just treat the symptoms. He wants me to find the cause of the problems and fix that. See, the Word of God doesn't want you treating the symptoms of your life. He wants you rooting out the cause of your issues. Now, Jesus, the Bible says, is the great physician. Now, if you have a doctor who's going to take time to listen to you, and he takes all the blood tests, and he goes himself and gets updated on the latest and greatest medical things, isn't it worth taking time to listen to the doctor too? Well, the Bible refers to Jesus as that great physician, and when he examines us, uh, he uses his word. And he wants us to give him sufficient time to do the job well. And perhaps one reason we just glance in the word instead of gaze in the word, maybe we're scared of what we're going to find. But that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to meet the cold, hard truth so that something can be done about that. And, and when we see something in the word that needs fixing, we ought to take notes. If you just read your Bible and you don't take notes, I, I wonder sometimes if you got any good out of it. Now, you can get a yellow legal pad, that's great. Get a a journal, that's great. I have one daughter who one year filled up about 1,300 pages of journals with insights. I will never do that because I'm just not that disciplined at journaling. But if you think it is a sin to write in your Bible, I'm a big sinner because I've got notes on nearly every page from something I read, something that stuck in my mind, something I heard that I wanted to remember later. So take notes, but... Don't leave. Now, so we need to receive the word. Here's the second thing. We need to practice the word. See, the blessing, you notice he says, he says, it is in the doing. He says, if you do the word, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer also, this man shall be blessed in the the doings. Literally is the literal translation there. So the emphasis in James is on practicing the word. Some translation says you're to continue in the word. And by the way, there's all... manner of verses there in Scripture. I've listed a whole bunch from the book Acts for this idea that these people continued in the Word, in doctrine, and in prayer. That's Acts chapter 4, actually, I think. And, uh, but, and I love what it, the King James says, but whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continueth there, and that means you keep doing it. It's not you just do it one day, but you have a lifestyle where you're going to do what is in the Word of God. He says, he being not a forgetful heir, but a doer of the Word, this man shall be blessed Now, by the way, why does James call the Bible the Word of God? Why does he call that the perfect law of liberty? Now, that is a title that can never be given to another book. It's a title that can't be given to the books of philosophy, it can't be given to the Apocrypha, it can't be given to the Koran, it can't be given to the Midrash, it can't be given to anything. It's only to the Word of God. But that's because it sets us free. Uh, Psalm 119, I will walk at liberty for I seek thy precepts. So when we live in God's precepts, we're free. Now a lot of people have this idea, if I live by the Bible, I, don't, I have to give up all my freedoms. I can't do this thing that was funny anymore. I can't do this thing. Let me tell you something. When God enters your life and you spend time in his word, you have the freedom to become the person God meant for you to be. It's not about freedom to do whatever sin you want. It's about freedom to be the best you can be as God created you and redeemed you. That's real freedom. Uh, I was in a firehouse one time in uh, East Texas, Nacogdoches, and uh, I had been doing some marital counseling for a number of firemen. Now, firemen have rough lives. They, they live at the, the fire station three to four days a week. Some of them don't see their wives during that time. Others, their wives may be nice enough to come up and bring them lunch or something. Uh, a lot of times in firehouses, it's like long periods of boredom interspersed with brief moments of panic. That's a good description of a fireman's life. And so sometimes you're just there. And, and one thing that happens, unfortunately, and I'm not saying this is true of every firehouse or every a uh, group of men, you'll find, but a lot of times when you just get a whole bunch of men together and there's no women there, and they're not trying to soften their talk or be genteel or be gentlemen, uh, their conversations can become crass. And one man will uh, lack of, or one man's carnality will probably drag down another man's spirituality, and it, it's a problem. So there were a lot of marital problems there. But I was talking to one fireman one day. I'll never forget what he said because we were talking about. Uh, there were several cases of adultery going on in this particular uh, firehouse. And he, his statement to me was, and he had been married at that time about 25 years, he said, I would not trade 25 years of marriage for 10 minutes of fleshly experience. In other words, he was smart. He, he understood that 10 minutes of, with the wrong woman in an act of immorality could cause him to lose 25 years of marriage. See, most of us, we don't make those calculations. And so that's why it's important to understand that when we follow God's precepts, we have freedom, we don't have disaster. As Dave Ramsey says, if you do stupid, you'll reap desperate. And this fireman understood that. Well, look at this. John eight thirty four. Jesus said this. Whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. Now I'm pretty sure I haven't looked at that passage but I'm pretty sure that's a present tense verb. In other words, when you live in a pattern of sin, you become its servant, you become its slave. Jesus said this. He says, "If you continue in my what? My word." That's what we've been talking about. Receiving the word. If you continue my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Makes you what? Not a bondage, not a slave. Not a person who has no choice. It makes you free. So it is a principle in scripture that obeying the word gives you freedom, not bondage. So we have that ministry of examination that the Bible does for us. Uh, But uh, there is this thing in the tabernacle called the laver. So here's a picture of the tabernacle. Uh, Obviously not a real photograph because we hadn't found the tabernacle or it's gone. But you'll notice there's a gate. The gate was on the east side. Judah camped on the east side because you had to walk through Judah to get in the tabernacle. And Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah because there is no other way to have a relationship with God the Father except through Jesus Christ. He is our sacrament. He is our access to God. Nothing else. Nobody can do that for us. Church can't do it for us. Organizations can't do it for us. Your friends can't do it for you. Your mom and daddy can't do it for you. It's only through Jesus. Now, when you get inside... You first come to the brazen altar. That's a big square thing in the middle. And the brazen altar was for people to bring the sacrifice and ask the priest to give that sacrifice on the altar to help them atone or, uh, uh, for their sins. Now, they had to do this constantly because they didn't have a permanent propitiation. And our pastors preached a sermon series lately on the different aspects of salvation. And propitiation is that word that means he becomes Sin for us, and He takes on Him the punishment of God, and that's what Jesus did for us. He atones for our sin. But right beyond that, right before you get in the tent, so the whole thing, by the way, is called the tabernacle. The tent is called the tabernacle proper, and inside there's some things. There's a table of showbread. There's an altar of incense. There's a candlestick, and then there's this thick curtain, uh, and on the other side of the curtain is the the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the, uh, that section was called the holiest of holies and only the high priest could go in there and only that once a year. But that, that laver, that bowl you see right before the temple, only the priest could go to it and they could wash it off. And we've got different ideas of what the laver might have looked like and I think these are probably pretty good representations. There's there's a couple of interesting things about the labor. Of course, it had two parts. You had to wash your feet in it, and you had to wash your hands. And the Bible says that the priest had to wash their feet and hands before they could go inside the tabernacle proper or they'd die. This was so big a deal that when John the Baptist, you remember, his uh, father was going in, it was his turn to minister inside the temple, not the tabernacle, but later uh, the temple. He goes inside to minister at the temple, and they were so afraid that they would do something that would God would not be happy with. That they would tie uh, that you had bells on the, the bottom of your garment, and they would tie something around your leg or your foot. And if they didn't hear the bells ringing for a while, they thought, "Oh, that priest did something bad. He died." And then they they'd, they'd kill haul you out of there. Uh, and so this was a big deal to go in there. But the priest, one of the things they had to do is they had to wash their hands. And they had to wash their feet before they went inside tabernacle proper. But this is only something for the priest to do. The regular folks from the congregation didn't do this. It was just people that had this relationship. So let's compare and contrast the altar and the laver a little bit. So the the altar was made of wood and brass. The laver is just brass. The altar was square in shape. The laver is round. The altar had specific dimensions given. There are no dimensions given for the labor. We don't know how big the labor is. Now, later in the temple there are dimensions, but not here at the tabernacle. And it's because God's when when you're saved, when you've asked Jesus Christ to be in your heart, you can go to the labor of restoration. That is spiritually, you can go and ask God to forgive you, and you know there is no bounds to the forgiveness of God for the Christian. There's never an end of it. And now, if they had specified dimensions for the labor, it might have been saying, hey, there's this much forgiveness and no more. But I'm glad to know that no matter how long I live, there's still enough forgiveness for the things, the stupidness that I'm going to do in the future. Now, there were rings and stays for carrying it, but you don't find any mention of that for the labor. It was covered when it was carried on the altar, but there's no mention of covering the labor. Uh, It was for burning a fire on, but the laver was for water rather than fire. And the altar was for receiving sacrifices all, but the laver was for priests alone. Now, why is that such a a big deal? Well, the priests were to bathe their entire body when they were ordained. So in the ordination ceremony, they bathed their entire body, and then they had blood put on the the right thumb, the right big toe, the right ear, and there's a whole other reason for that. Uh, And in following ordination, every time they went into the tabernacle or approached the bronze altar to minister, they had to wash again. So why is that all important to understand? Why does that have anything to do with me? Because that's Old Testament mumbo-jumbo. That's what we think. But there is significance between being cleansed by the blood and being washed by the water. Let me say that again. There's a significance for the Christian... A difference between cleansed by the blood and washed by the water. You are only cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ one time. That's the moment you receive Jesus as your Savior. But from then on out, you're cleansed by the water, and it's a frequent thing you have to go back to again and again. And by the way, in the New Testament, the water pictures the washing. Uh, Ephesians tells us very specifically, it's the washing of of the Word. That's the water. It's the washing of the Word of God. And so uh, there's a lot of confusion, I think. A lot of songs think that being uh, washed with the water is the same thing as being washed by the blood. No, they're two different concepts. See, Aaron and his sons had to wash their hands and feet before they entered the temple. So at, at the brazen altar, all sins were put away. But at the golden altar inside, you presented worship to God. And between those two altars, the one inside the tent and the one outside the tent the priest had to restore a right relationship with God by washing off the defilement of the world. Now, it's Sunday today, and I don't know what you're going to do for Father's Day or what your plans are, but I can tell you that sometime between now and next Sunday, if you're like I am, you're going to mess up. You're going to need God's forgiveness, and you're going to need to go to Him and ask for that forgiveness, and you may have to go every day. You may have to go several times a day, you may have to do it twice a week. I don't know what your life is like because I can't see your heart. But the reality is is we can't really serve the Lord if our conscience isn't right with God. A good thing to do is make sure every night before you go to bed that your slate is clean between you and God and between you and your family members. Get those things right. Because God uh, has already accepted you in Jesus Christ, but He wants you to purify. In fact, it's the Bible refers to this as two kinds of forgiveness. There's judicial forgiveness, and then there's relational forgiveness. When Jesus died on the cross, those of us who received him as our Savior were judicially forgiven. That means once and for, for eternity. When God looks at the record books, he sees that I am covered in the blood of Christ, and he sees me through blood-colored glasses, and he always sees me as forgiven because I am in Christ by the way, for every one time the Bible talks about Jesus being in you, it mentions three times that you are in Christ. That's a bigger deal. So every time Jesus, or God the Father looks at me, he says, oh, there's Robert, but he's in Jesus, and Jesus is perfect, and Jesus died for his sins. Robert's covered. But there's a different kind of problem. You remember, at John, and I think it's, um, I'm not going to quote because I'm going to get it wrong. It's chapter 13. I think it's John 13. But at the Last Supper, at the Last Supper, Jesus gets up during the meal and he puts a white apron on. And he goes around from disciple to disciple and he stoops down. And nobody had done this. Normally if you have dinner together, one of the things you do is you have a servant or a slave who will wash off the the feet of the people as they come into the room because after all they've been out there in the dust and the dirt and dirt roads and and they come in with filthy feet and so you'd wash them. Nobody did this at the Last Supper. And then Jesus puts on this white apron and he goes around with a bowl of water and he starts washing their feet. And then after he washes their feet, he dries them off on his white apron. And I think you can probably imagine what happened to the white apron after you've washed a few disciples' dirty feet. Probably wasn't really white anymore. It's, it, was, it was a picture of the fact he's taken the dirt off of them and put on to himself. It was a very vivid picture. But you remember what happened when he gets to Peter? Peter, the apostle of outrageous extremes, And Peter says, oh, no, you're not going to do me. I'm not worthy of that. And and then Jesus makes a very interesting comment. He says, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part with me. And Peter, of course, went to the opposite extreme. Well, then wash my whole body. Let's start the heads, go down the feet, make sure you get everything in between. And Jesus makes another interesting comment. He says, I don't need to wash all that because you've already been washed but I need to wash your hands and your feet. And I'm sure Peter, being a good Jew, had to think for a moment and he remembered that the priest, those who are serving the Lord, those who are following Christ, they had to wash their feet and their hands. What Jesus is saying is, judicially, you are forgiven the moment you receive Jesus Christ, but then every day, if you want to enjoy your relationship, you better ask forgiveness for the stuff you did. Now, if you're not married, this may still not make sense to you, but let me just tell you, you will discover one day when you're married that you will do something that will irritate your spouse. Sooner or later, uh, it's going to be that you put the toilet tissue on the wrong way and it rolls from the back instead of the front where God intended it to, or you're going to squeeze the toothpaste in the middle instead of from the end where God intended us to, or you're going to... Uh, you're going to forget to inform your spouse of what the, the uh, time arrangements are or the schedules or the commitments or something is going to happen. And it's going to irritate. And at that point, you have an interesting situation. You are still married, but you're not really enjoying your relationship with each other. There are, I will never cease to be a child of God the Father because Jesus Christ made that a forever thing. I can't lose it, by the way. There are some people who said if you don't regularly attend church, if you don't regularly get certain sacraments that you lose your relationship with God, that's not anywhere in Scripture, and I challenge anybody to find it. In fact, I can show you several places where that is completely and utterly wrong. I am forever a child of God. I will not lose that, but you know what? There's times that the Lord and I don't enjoy a good relationship And by the way, it's never because he's done anything to irritate me. It's because something's wrong with me that I don't understand what he's doing, don't like what he's doing, or I'm not in a right relationship uh, with him. Uh, And what I need to do then is get relational forgiveness. So, see, I don't have to get forgiveness. uh, In other words, every time I do something that upsets Judy, I don't have to go down and marry her again. We're still married. But I do have to ask her forgiveness if I want things to be friendly between us. Okay? Two kinds of forgiveness. Now, why did the priests need to be washed? Well, for one, they had to kill the sacrifice. So, if they didn't wash before they killed the sacrifice on the brazen altar for other people, then they would contaminate the the sacrifices ceremonially. So, that, that had to be true. Every day, you and I are going to be dealing with people out in the world who are still dead in their trespasses and sin and we can't help them if our relationship with Jesus Christ isn't right. Then, The priests didn't wear shoes in the tabernacle area and they would get defiled if they didn't wash their hands and their feet. And walking through this life, we're going to see stuff that's going to affect us. Um, Judy was just commenting yesterday how just commercials that you see on TV anymore are stuff that we never would have seen 30 years ago. Just the commercials, not talking about the programs. I'm talking about the obscene gestures on commercials. There's one Right now, that's out there, and woman's giving the, flipping the bird with both hands. Let's just say it that way. And and it's not only not a ladylike thing to do; it's a vulgar thing to do. And it would have never passed the censors 25, 30 years ago. It's it's tragic. So we're going to get com- defiled by this world if we spend any time at all. That's why we got to keep a clean slate with God. But Aaron and his sons had to do this because uh, now, if they had failed they still would have belonged to the nation of Israel. But if they'd gone into the tabernacle, they'd have died because they failed to have a regard for the holiness of that place. And even if they didn't go in the tabernacle, they couldn't serve as priests anymore because they had failed to wash. They couldn't serve the Lord in their capacity. So I will always be a child of God, but there's times that my service is worthless because I don't have a right relationship with Jesus Christ uh, now, I want you to notice two things about the labor. You may think, what's this have to do with the mirrors? Exodus 30, verse 18. This is the first instruction. He says, Thou shalt make a labor of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal, and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. Pretty simple instructions. Now, what did Moses actually do? Exodus 38 tells us, eight chapters later, He made the labor of brass, and the foot of, it of brass, of the looking glasses of the women assembling. They, they didn't have glass back then. The Phoenicians didn't invent glass to about the 14th century B.C. There was no glass back then. So if you wanted to see what you looked like, you had a piece of brass, you polished it up real good, then you ladies could look in that piece of brass if it was properly polished, and you could see if you needed to do something with your hair, your makeup, whatever, and you could fix things with these brass mirrors. Now, by the way, if you didn't keep your mirrors polished and it got tarnished, you may have thought you had age spots you didn't even know about. I don't know what that was like for a woman looking in a tarnished mirror. So you polished that thing religiously. Well, he made it of mirrors. So the first mirror is when James talks about when we look into the Word of God, it's like a mirror that examines ourselves. This second mirror here in Exodus is the laver itself. It is made of mirrors from the women in the congregation, and he says you need, once you see what's wrong with yourself, you need to restore a right relationship with God. In other words, you need to ask God's forgiveness for those relational sins. And then the water, of course, that's in there is a picture of the cleansing power of God. John 15, 3, You are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. What makes us clean according to Jesus, talking to his disciples, not to the lost people, but to his disciples? Because he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He's talking to his disciples. He says, you're clean through the word which I've spoken to you. Uh, Paul said to the Ephesians that the church is sanctified and cleansed with the washing of water by the word. Not with sacraments or rituals, but with the washing of the word to spend time in the word. When a sinner trusts Jesus Christ, he's once and all washed clean. But just as the believer walks through the world and his hands are defeated, he needs cleansing. And he needs it often. And John spends part of the whole chapter on that. Now... How does the Word cleanse us from sin? We thought all we had to do to be cleansed of sin is just ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, and that was the end of it. Well, for one thing, that promise of cleansing is in the Word, right? If you didn't know the Word, you wouldn't know that the Word says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, nine. But another thing is, is as we meditate on the Word of God, it changes our behavior. Just like the song that we read the words of moments ago, the more time we spend in it, the more like Christ we become. And it's the blood of Christ that cleanses the guilt, but it's the water of the Word that restores our relationship and frees us from defilement. Now, remember that story of Nathan going to... Uh, David and saying, Thou art the man. He tells him his whole story about sheep. And David gets really mad. He's ready to go after the guy that stole his neighbor's sheep. And then Nathan points his old bony, crooky finger at King David and says, Thou art the man. Uh, and, and then it was kind of like he was holding up the mirror of God's word. And David's reaction was, he, he admitted immediately, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. But Nathan did not stop there. Look what he says to David after that. He says, the Lord has also put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. So in other words, the word brought restoration. He says, hey, the Lord will forgive you. You confess your sins, the Lord has forgiven you. You're not going to die from this. And David went and he visited the labor and he washed his hands and feet. And if we stop uh, just with examining ourselves, we don't do enough. And even if we stop just asking God to forgive us, we haven't done enough because there's one more thing you need to do, and that is the mirror of transformation. And that is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And as the Lord restores us, he wants to change us to be like Jesus. Now, I'm going to quit on this slide. There's a lot more here. But just for the sake of time, so you can enjoy Father's Day, I'm going to quit there. But, but look in 2 Corinthians 3. He, 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 Paul talks about a couple of things. He said, the law is external. It's written on tables of stone. But salvation means that God writes his law in our hearts. Writes it inside of us. That's where it is. We don't have to carry around the tablets of stone anymore because he's got it on our heart and the old covenant ministry had to kill sacrifices and it was focused on condemning those who had not been forgiven but the new covenant brings happiness and life and abundance and jesus says i have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly the the he tells a story about moses and we'll pick up here next time tells a story about moses who spent, you remember, 40 days on the mountain with God, right? He comes down. Moses has a little anger problem, if you don't know that. Now, this, is, by the way, is interesting to me because the Bible says, who who was the meekest man in all the earth? According to Scripture, it was Moses. He was meek. He gave up his own rights all the time, but he got mad because he saw... Aaron uh, and and others flipping jewelry into the fire and out comes this golden calf. That's what Aaron tells it, by the way. They threw in all these earrings and suddenly, accidentally, out of nowhere, out comes these these bulls that they can worship. Well, I won't tell you what I call that theory here in Texas. But that's not what happened. But Moses sees it and he gets so mad, he throws down the Ten Commandments. And God is not happy with Moses. He says, first of all, you've got to come back up here and get another copy and not only did he have to go get to the copy, but God said, you know, remember last time you were up here 40 days ago, Moses? I cut the tablets out of the rock with my finger. This time, you're going to have to take a hammer and chisel. You're going to have to carve out your own tablets because I'm not doing that for you anymore. You broke mine, so you carve these out. Moses is going to have a little more respect for it because he's going to have to invest some equity, elbow grease in this. And then... God dictates the Ten Commandments again, and he's up there 40 days, and I'm pretty sure that means if you've got uh, Ten Commandments and you're there for 40 days, that uh, God would give you a commandment and then give you a while to think about it before you got the next one. And then he, he, he did all this. But when he came down from the mountain, he had spent all that time in the presence of God, and his face shone. It had to show noticeably because he noticed it himself. I don't notice what's on my face, but I guarantee you, if I, there was a flashlight on my face, I'd probably see the light on my hands. Moses somehow they knew, and so he covered his face with a veil because he didn't want people, A, worshiping him, and secondly, he didn't want the, the people to see the glory going away or the glory fading. And he kept that veil on, and of course, the only people that saw him without the veil, if I remember right, were Aaron and her. And they saw him without that. and Joshua too, I think, come to think of it. And so they come down the mountain and he's wearing a veil because the glory was fading. And in the Old Testament, the glory faded. But in the New Testament, God's glory in our lives should be getting brighter and brighter. We should be going close to the Lord. We should be becoming more like Jesus. We should share in the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, a good paraphrase of that, and I'll cover this next time. It says that when the children of God look into the Word of God, they see the Son of God, and they, share in the, they, they are changed by the Spirit of God, so one day they share in the glory of God. Magnificent verse. And that's obviously not King James, but it says the same thing. The law was temporary, but the covenant of grace is eternal. There's a lot more here, but we'll pick up on it next time. So, here's what I want you to take away from today as Brother Steve comes and leads us on a song. It's this fact. And that is, yes, we have to be intentional, but we have to make sure that when we get in the Word, it's not to just assuage our own, uh, our own conscience. It's not just to meet my requirement of having spent five minutes in the Word today or listening to three chapters of Scripture. We need to stay in the Word until we see ourselves the way God does and we know what it is that that day we need to repent of and we need to go to Jesus and ask Him to forgive us relationally so I can enjoy my relationship. David says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I will confess something to you. Not every day am I super happy to be a Christian. Now, it's a wonderful thing, but some days I just don't feel the joy. I love being a dad. Some days I don't feel the joy of being a dad. I love being a husband. Some days I don't feel the joy of being a husband. We lose our joy from time to time, don't we? And we need to ask God to restore our relationship so we can restore, He can restore into us the joy of our salvation. And then I really need to start doing what the Word says until when people watch what I do and listen to what I say... They suddenly dawns on them that that's reflecting the character of Christ. I don't want anybody ever looking at my life and thinking I was just about rules and regulations. And I've tried not to do that with my kids. You know, there are a few things I would love to etch in stone and hang around their necks so they'd never forget. And there are things I have to remind them of from time to time. But, you know, I'm not about rules and regulations. I just want them to have a right relationship with me and a right relationship with Jesus Christ all I want and if they go through their life really spending time in the word and hearing from the word and doing what the word asks them to do and they become more like Jesus every time I see them and every time the world sees them then that's the only thing a godly father should care about brother Steve come and lead us in this psalm